Okay, welcome everybody uh, to summer school again. I saw lots of you on Monday morning at some unearthly hour, uh, 8 o'clock, 9.20 or whatever it was. Um, again, my name is Mick Cox. I'm the uh, academic uh, director of summer school and one of, the, uh, one of the jobs I have, one of the tasks uh, that I undertake and one of the things I actually really, really like doing is organising this part of what we call the LSE experience. And part of the LSE experience, apart from meeting uh, and listening to wonderful lecturers like Conor Geerty, as you will later on this evening, is public lectures. One of the things the LSE prides itself on and thinks is an absolutely essential part of what the function of a university ought to be is not to sit in an ivory tower behind very large trees, but essentially to engage with real-world issues in a real-world city. And we are right in the heart of that real-world city. And if you look on our conferences and our events, you'll see how many things happen here every week. We don't have a president on Monday a tax dodger on Tuesday, a banker on a Wednesday, an academic on a Thursday, or somebody else on a Friday, we're deeply disappointed, and usually two or three yeah. per evening. So it, it is one of the things we, we do here, and one of the things we really wanted to bring to the experience for you guys, because we know, you know you're here, and this is part of what we, we think would be great for you. I'm not going to do the introductions tonight, just to say that this is our first. It's, it's on the questions of international law, security, personal liberty, and our next one will be on the full 14th of July on an equally uh, important issue, uh, the earth in crisis, global warming and the failure of cli climate diplomacy. For those who are doing another three weeks after this three weeks, best of luck, but if you're going to do that, there will be two more lectures as well. But I don't want to say any more tonight. I'm going to hand it over to our friend here to introduce Conor Geerty. Thank you for coming here this evening and have a good night. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you very much to all of you for coming um, this evening. It's a full house. It's a very good turnout. Our speaker tonight is Professor Connor Geerty. Professor Connor Geerty will be known to anyone at LSE, but his reputation is also a national one. Um, for he writes in publications like the London Review of Books. He appears frequently on radio, and he's freely available on the Internet as well. <laughs> he's a professor of law, professor of human rights law here at the LSE. He was formerly the director of the uh, Centre for Human Rights um, until 2009, and he's just recently, last year, started up a new department, is it, within the LSE? Institute. Co new Institute, sorry. Institute for Public Affairs, IPA, um, which is uh, very fresh and um, very innovative. Uh, he's also known as a barrister, so he has um, the experience of a practitioner, the intellect of an academic, so he ticks many boxes which other colleagues in the department, myself included, do not. Uh, and he's here to speak about human rights, security, and the rule of law after Snowden, which, again, is, I think, a perfect discussion for us because it's a, it's a classic topic, isn't it? The state has always, had, um, the, um, has always tried to spy on us by bugging telephones manually or by breaking into our homes and by intercepting letters. In fact, one of, one of the oldest cases you will study if you study law in the United Kingdom will be Entick versus Carrington from 1765, which deals with precisely this kind of topic. But, of course, that's not what he will be talking about. It's a classic topic. It's also a very topical one. 
uh, of uh, continuing relevance. And so whether you're studying LL101, an introduction to English law, or the course that I teach, introduction to human rights law, or indeed any other subject in the summer school, I think the issues that Connor, Professor Geerty, will speak about today will resonate with you in manifold ways, in different ways, which I will not seek to control. So, Connor, do you want to speak from the table, from here? No, I'm going to speak from here. You want to speak from from here? Yeah. Can I please welcome Connor Geerty, our speaker tonight? Uh, Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, Look, I know... I know you're all here in the first flush of enthusiasm. I always try and get these lectures right at the start of summer school. You know, you feel under a kind of obligation, Mick's such a nice guy, that when he announces these lectures, you sign up. And basically, I'm hoping that social obligation keeps you here for an hour. So thank you very much for coming. I know how much you've worked. You've already had, all of you have had uh, three hours, haven't you, already today, in various courses. I couldn't, four, stop exaggerating. (laughs) You're counting your class, which I know the first day is always, what are your names? Where are you from? <laughs> I used to do that. It used to go on for hours of me. I would, I would avoid having to do any teaching by getting everybody to explain at some length who they are, and then i go, oops, we're out of time. It's an old trick. <laughs> I'm sure he does it. Keep an eye on him. Uh, so thanks for coming. But yeah, I'm modifying my thanks because you've basically fallen for it, haven't you? But there is a reward. Uh, Mick hasn't announced a reward because in our experience, in our experience, if we announce the reward, Mick, if we announce it too early you'll all leave. Because uh, we, we have at this moment got a team of uh, LSE people putting together a drinks reception. So they are going to be making available an opportunity to have a few drinks, softer uh, wine, and to have a chat. And it's going to be in a very nice room, actually. But, Mick, you're going to tell them right at the end, aren't you? Because, again, another form of humiliation is if you all leave. I did a lecture in Jersey, which is a funny little tax dodging. Tax dodging, tax dodging. Uh, which am I, Mick? I'm not a president, I'm not a banker, I must be a, what was the other one, tax dodger. Anyway, I did a lecture, I did uh, the two most peculiar lectures I ever did, one was in Brighton and one was in Jersey, and this has nothing to do with Mount Snowden or Lord Snowden or even Edward Snowden, Uh, and we'll get to which Snowden in a minute, I can't remember which one I thought about. Uh, I did did a, a presentation and there was a bar. You can imagine, there were people as many as you guys, not all you guys. There was, a, there was a, as many. And there was a bar over there offering free drink with, <laughs> with a beautifully attired black tie waiter. And I felt like stopping my own lecture to get a drink. <laughs> I mean, and the other one, since I'm rambling, the other one, I went to give the nurse of the year. I mean, I am totally, you know, available on the internet, freely available. <laughs> Freely available everywhere. I mean, it's just pathetic, really. I awarded, I made the Nurse of the Year Award. And uh, it was one of those giant checks. You know, it was very Z-list celebrity, you know, me. But when I arrived, they'd had a conference. When I arrived, I was doing the after-dinner talk. And when I arrived, they said, we're terribly sorry. The conference ended extremely early, and all we could think of doing was sending the nurses to the dinner. And we decided, because it was some time before, before the dinner, we'd give them wine. So I went into a room with 450 drunk nurses. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it was quite revealing, because, of course, I'm going to make a slightly gendered point, but it's observational, not political. They were mainly women. And so I was confronted by what happens to women on a daily basis, virtu- loud and verbal harassment of me. <laughs> and then I had to give them the check. So those were two bizarre occasions. This one, 
human rights, security and the rule of law after Snowden. Uh, It's going to be fairly serious uh, and it's going to go on. I think I'll go on. Joe's going to sort of... Joe said to me, I said, I can manage my own time. And he looked at me fiercely and he said, I'll let you know when you've spoken too long. He knows me quite well. I do go on a bit, as has already been indicated. But I haven't even got started yet, Joe. You must be getting quite nervous. Uh, Human rights, security and the rule of law after Snowden. I'm going to talk for, I'd say, talk for another 40 minutes or so. I'm going to give you my little theories. And then I think we're going to have question and answer session, you know, which would be good, which is a really enjoyable bit. And also opportunities for people to say things as well as just question and challenge. And then we'll, we'll go for the drink at the place to be revealed. Uh, the Snowden is not Lord Snowden, whom none of you will have heard of. The marvellous thing about age is that eventually people forget totally innocuous people. In due course, people will not know who whoever Kate Middleton is, if that's her name. Well, Snowden was married to somebody. Who was it again? You seem to be a knowledgeable royalist. Lord, she was, he was married to Princess Margaret or something. It's not him. Am I right? Was it Princess Margaret? It's not him. And nor is it that distinguished mountain in Wales. Is it in Wales, Mick? It's in Wales. Mick used to be at Aberystwyth. It's, it's not Mount Snowden. I, I did toy with the possibility of having a very eccentric speech about, uh, about Mount Snowden, <laughs> showing my geographic knowledge. And you'd all say, very odd fellow. But because it's the first week, you think it was serious. Uh, it's Edward Snowden. And Edward Snowden is, of course, this remarkable guy, so far as one can tell, uh, quite conservative, uh, working away uh, not uh, with the National Security Agency, uh, he is a symbol of our times, really, because he's a privatised person. And his job in America, as we all know, was basically to snoop uh, one of a myriad of people who became aware of the range and depth of eavesdropping, surveillance, and interception of communication that there was routinely all around the world, being driven by the NSA, the United States, uh, the National Security Agency, and uh, colluded in by Britain, where we are, of course, now, about which I will say a little bit because uh, we are in Britain and we'll pick up a little bit of British culture along the way, and some of this lecture is going to be British-oriented. And he's now, as you may know, he's in Russia. He's still, I think, in Russia. He's at some uh, unknown location. He played a complete blinder in terms of evading the clutches of the United States. John Kerry, some of you may be American, in which case a special welcome, but John Kerry said, I think, one of the silliest things I've ever heard said by a politician, which was, why doesn't that traitor come back and face a fair trial? Why doesn't, why doesn't that traitor, why doesn't that traitor before we, before we execute him? You know, I mean, I mean uh, now I'm not propagandizing for law, but really, uh, people should do a little bit of law before they get into positions which allow them to do that. Cameron did exactly the same about the, uh, in a well-known and notorious case here recently. Anyway, he's escaped the clutches of the Americans, and he's, uh, his situation is uncertain. Uh, but I'm not going to go into the details of a person whom I do believe to be extraordinarily courageous and defiant to the point of foolhardy, and a person who does remind me a bit of Daniel Ellsberg, and a person around whom history pivots, because he has... Uh, he has done the most amazing thing in terms of telling us stuff. What I'm interested in uh, is, is the question how. You know, what we have here are these programs, Prism Tempera, just two, where 
you have this wholesale surveillance and uh, interceptive communications, and we are all vulnerable, and it's being done uh, in a completely organized, coherent way uh, without our knowing, and it's involving privatized operations, and they're all doing it, and so on. It is the dystopian nightmare of the libertarians. It is worse than could have been imagined even by George Orwell, and it's happening at a time when we have the primacy of human rights and the rule of law. So what I, I want to reflect on, and what the subject of these remarks is going to be, is about how we have this kind of intrusion in a culture and in a framework of law that pri prioritizes the protection of human rights. In America, they would be called, I guess, civil rights, and which prioritizes the rule of law. And therefore, how such conduct can become normalized within a country or countries which sees itself as a human rights respecting environment, which sees itself as a rule of law abiding environment. And so that's the theme, really. Now, another example of this was, and I used this at the start of a little book I wrote, a very short little book, called Liberty and Security, last year. Uh, Polity Press on the web, freely available. No, sorry. <laughs> I may be, but it's not. Uh, George Bush, President George Bush II, uh, his inaugural address on second term, which applauded the importance of freedom and liberty, and I think he used the language of human rights, so I can't quite now remember. And this was, in a non-ironical way, presented as a very good second inaugural speech. Uh, but at a time when we by now knew about Abu Ghraib, where we knew about routine uh, official sanctioned torturing of detainees, where we knew about the wholesale repudiation of the rule of law in Guantanamo and in other places. And yet, this was not a mock, ironical set of remarks by somebody who in their private uh, discussions before it was saying, I have to go out there now and fool the American people. This was somebody who genuinely believed it. So what I'm trying to explore with you is, and I'll do it through Britain and then back to America and then expand a bit and end with Snowden, is how it is possible to believe that you are supporting human rights and the rule of law while you appear to be colluding in extraordinarily antagonistic actions in terms of the protection of human rights and extraordinarily subversive actions in the context of the rule of law. So that's the sort of theme. And my snapshot answer, just to help you try and recall some of this later, which I hope you will do, is that the answer lies in understanding that something has shifted in what we mean by democracy. And what has shifted is a move from what, for the sake of argument and in order for it to be remembered, I rather glibly call a shift from democracy to neo-democracy, to a state of affairs where invasions of human rights and attenuations of the rule of law can be integrated within the human rights and within the democratic and within the legal framework. So it's not, this is 
uh, I think, an important point to put up there on the table. It's not you have security concerns and you have human rights concerns, and they are antagonistic, and every now and again, in the name of security, you trump human rights. That, on which more in a moment, but that's not the model of the moment. The model of the moment is that the security stuff has invaded the human rights idea and has contaminated it. Uh, now, it's funny, I was looking at this this afternoon for somebody else. Ten years ago, I stood exactly here, and I gave a lecture saying, is human rights doing more harm than good? And one of the examples I gave was of how the language of human rights is being used as a cover for the destruction of rights and as a cover uh, and a camouflage for the destruction of legal processes. So it's been going on for a bit. Uh, now, what am I talking about? Let me build the case a bit. Go back to Snowden. Uh, one of the tricks deployed to uh, secure uh, legal legitimacy for what was being done was to rely on a friendly powers legal system in order to secure information that might not have been possible domestically but was possible in regards foreign activities. Now what I mean by that, just in a sort of very trivial kind of way, is the, Brit the British would do stuff which they could then share with the Americans, which the British could do, but the Americans couldn't do, and vice versa. Uh, the British authorities claimed to be acting lawfully insofar as they colluded with the authorities in the United States. That's worth just stopping and pausing on, because they did not say, the world's a very dangerous place, good heavens, how dangerous is it? Security means that we have to flout the law. Security means that we have to ignore the law. They did not say that. That would be an example of the, the model I was describing, security versus human rights, security versus the law. They said, we are allowed, we are allowed engage in this mass interception. And they pointed to a law. The law is called the Regulatory, uh, Regulation of Investigatory Procedures Act 2000. You don't need to know much about that. But it was Section 8, Subsection 4. So they felt that they had ticked the legal box. Now, why were there legal boxes to tick? And this is where the, the talk goes a little bit deeper. Something has been happening to the way we deal with security since picking a date not out of the air, 1989. And this requires a little tiny bit of uh, trivial history. The Cold War, following the real war, following the Red Scare, is the capital fact of the 20th century. But another capital fact of the 20th century is democracy. And another big picture point about the 20th century is the rule of law. And what we know since 1989 is that the rule of law and democracy have become hegemonic. They have become the show. But what about the Cold War? In the period up to 1989, Western powers acted in the interest of national security in a way that stood outside the law. 
So you had a framework of law which governed the relationship between the individual and the state. And then you had the security services. And the security services would engage in Cold War activities. You know, they would spy, they would expel people, they would presumably occasionally assassinate, they would engage in defensive activity which did not connect up with the legal firmament. So the two were separate. It's a bit the same, parenthetically, I don't want to load too much stuff on you. It was a bit the same in Britain, say, for example, between colonial activities and domestic activities. So domestic activities would be about having the rule of law, fair play, open justice, and then colonial activities in the 50s and then the 60s and into Northern Ireland, not colonial but more or less colonial, would have been about keeping the natives down, would have been about curfews, would have been about, as we now know from recent cases, uh, recent cases, uh, torture and inhuman and degrading treatment in places like Kenya, assassination, etc., etc. So there were these separate bubbles. There was the bubble-marked law and then there was the bubble-marked security. Now, every now and again... Every now and again, the two intersected briefly. So what you got was, every now and again, say somebody who suddenly found themselves being deported would challenge it in court. And the court would say, nothing to do with us. Sorry, not us. There's a famous case in 1977, Hosenball, an American guy, thrown out, says, why the hell are you throwing me out? We don't like you. Uh, You know, a lefty. And uh, Lord Denning, who was a famous judge here, says, you know, the interest of national security, absolutely nothing to do with us. Some years before, a case called Soblin, the same. So there were cases, but they were cases which uniformly supported state action on the grounds of security. And therefore, in a way, they, they were just confirming that this was not a sphere that the law entered. You saw the same in the United States Uh, one of the most infamous cases in the Supreme Court ever, 1951, Dennis and the United States, where the Supreme Court actually upheld McCarthyism, and really, in a way, it's the same sort of thing. McCarthyism was the big drive against internal enemies who were allegedly communist-inspired, and uh, even though they have free speech, the Supreme Court didn't touch it. The European Court of Human Rights in the 1950s German Communist Party was banned. There's a guarantee of freedom of association in the European Convention. They challenged it. The court said, no, nothing, to, or the commission said, nothing to do with us. The, very importantly, there's a special article in this thing which says you shouldn't be able to destroy democracy, more or less. You know. And so they say, well, you belong in that category, and therefore we're allowed to do what we want to you. So, big picture point. During the Cold War period, these systems did not meet much. And therefore, in a way, law didn't matter. Security people could do what they wanted, and they were answerable to their own masters, and they were answerable to potential diplomatic problems, etc., etc. The land of James Bond, the land of Smiley's people. Now, things changed. Things changed a bit before 1989, but then the change took root after 1989. And the change is with the, first of all, the, the, the rise of the idea of law as primary, the rise of the notion of human rights as primary, and the gradual decline 
in the, de- in the willingness to give a blank check to security apparatus. And so these things marked security do not open became things which courts and which lawyers began to open. And they began to open it under the impetus of human rights. Now, a little tiny diversion here. Human rights and law are integrally linked. Human rights and law are integrally linked. They're integrally linked because, obviously, you don't have absolute rights. So, to take, because we're in Britain and Europe, the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, 1950, came into force in 1953, bought into now by lots of countries. One of the great sort of effects of the end of the Cold War has been how this document has come to be supported by 47 or something countries. 48, I don't know how many. It doesn't give you a right to free speech, more importantly for these purposes, a right to privacy. More important for these purposes, a right to privacy. It says everyone has the right to respect for their privacy. The right to respect for their privacy subject to, and then there are exceptions, and every single exception has to be in accordance with law in accordance with law. That's an important point, because what happens is human rights, as an idea, reinforces the primacy of law. Human rights does not say, you can never come into my house. Human rights does not say, you can never telephone, uh, listen to my phone. Human rights says, you need to have a legal procedure. So the two are linked. And so once there's a kind of legal procedure, this is anticipating where I'm going with this, once there's a kind of legal procedure then maybe the human rights thing is going to be a bit more relaxed about the intrusion. So those people who tell you that human rights is part of law's empire are in a sort of way right. Because what human rights does is puts lawyers at the centre of the stage. That's why we like it, isn't it, Joe? Puts lawyers at the centre of the stage. Now, how did this come about? Well, in this country we have uh, police... We have internal uh, secret services, external secret services, and we have GCHQ, which was so secret, Mick will remember this, it wasn't even acknowledged to be the case, was it, until Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s? You'd be driving past this giant surveillance operation with huge big satellites sticking out of it and giant ears, and people would say, what's that? Oh, that's just a farm. (laughs) That's just a farm. And then there was some extraordinarily important spy who, because he was kind of posh, was allowed to carry on spying because he'd said, I was beaten at school and I'm a bit upset. And so it all blew open. It all blew open. But it starts, the story I'm telling about Britain, with the police. And that was a neat way in which it could start because interception of communications, the Snowden thing, of course the police do it too. And so this is not security, significantly. It's pre the end of the Cold War, early 1980s. Uh, A chap is facing a criminal charge, and the police are in the witness box, and the police officer says something, and the counsel, barrister, says, how do you know that? And he says, well, I was listening to his vote. What? I was listening, and then he goes all red and says, no, I wasn't, no, I wasn't, no, I wasn't, I forgot, forgot, no, no, made it up. But it's too late. So it turned out that the police had been intercepting his phone. And this was the first people knew about it. Now, this had been going on under a 
under a warrant. Well, that sounds like a vaguely legal word, warrant. But it was a warrant written by the Home Secretary. It was a warrant that the minister put his name on, and in this way it became very like the case you mentioned at the start, a case called Entvik and Carrington. So the chap, his name was Malone, he says, what about my human rights? My privacy. And now there's a little red herring here where the British courts could do nothing, but it went to Strasbourg, and Strasbourg said, absolutely, your privacy is invaded, and, this is the key point, there's no law. This warrant being presented by some minister isn't a law. This is a decision by a minister. So the British had to change their law, or rather had to make a law. So this is one of the very first examples of where the world of security is having an invasion of the law stuff. An invasion of the law stuff. So uh, police are very cross. uh, Government are very cross. But the police are, after all, the police. They're not national security. And a law is passed. A very, very important law in this country called the Interception of Communications Act 1985. Now, what it does not do is say there shall be no interceptions of communication. It does not do that. It doesn't protect privacy in some libertarian way. It creates a, yes, legal structure. So the legal structure is with, well, not really telling them in advance. You can't do that. You can't. Imagine if you wrote a letter saying, dear sir, I'm going to telephone tap you uh, on Monday. So I should make my telephone calls, which are confidential, on Sunday or Tuesday. That would be a bit silly. But they don't tell you if you've been tapped either. So how do you do it? Well, you get this kind of retired judge. You get some sort of funny little committee. And you write and say, dear judge, I hope you're enjoying your retirement. Uh, I think I was, I think my phone was tapped. Yours ever blogs. And the judge says, I've looked into things absolutely very, very carefully. And if it was, it will have been done in accordance with the law. This is law. So other people afterwards go to Strasbourg, where this European Court of Human Rights is, including a woman police officer, and they lose on this type of intervention, interference, because the court says, oh, there is a law. Now, something really important then began to happen, because the Cold War ends, 1989, really hard to keep the old security show on the road. Where's the enemy? They were talking up terrorism. They were really excited by terrorism in the 90s. And then they hit sort of bingo with 11 September 2001. But they were talking up new forms of terrorism and stuff. But hadn't quite done enough in the 90s. And the security people were under pressure. What was this security thing about? There was no worry anymore, etc. And they thought, ooh, this, this law, this human rights thing isn't as bad as we thought. This law, human rights thing, might be able to work for us. And so through the 90s and into the 2000s, there is what uh, colleagues, they wrote a, a book about this. They said it's coming in from the cold. A nice play. The end of the Cold War and coming in from the cold. So the MI5 people got their law, the Security Services Act 1989. Then the, the foreign ones, the, the, the people who, the James Bond people, this country doesn't like to acknowledge its relatively unimportant status. So it has a foreign James Bond crowd. 
They also got it, the Intelligence Services Act 1994, which, as I recall, has a sort of little James Bond clause. If you have to kill a foreigner, good old you. But don't do it in Britain. Isn't there something like that? And then the GCHQ people got in it, and you have the Regulation of Investigatory Procedures Act 2000 and Section 8, Subsection 4. We're back where we started. Meanwhile, the country is getting a Human Rights Act, but all of this is fine under human rights, because after all, we have the law. Another example. Uh, don't like a fellow, throw him out. Not a Brit, doesn't deserve to be here. Well, supposing he puts his hand up and says, you're going to throw me out, you're going to send me back to India, and I'm a Sikh, and I'm a radical, that's why you don't like me, and they're going to kill or torture me. Well, in the old days, bad luck, old chap. Dr. Soblin, bad luck. The world's tough, Cold War, human rights, ooh, you poor thing, you might be killed. So we have to have a law. So we have a special tribunal where he stands up and says, please, please, please don't send me to India, send me somewhere nice. And then we have to work out how to make the case, because after all, he's, he's a baddie. So we can't give him a normal case with normal, with normal uh, lawyers. So we'll have a special lawyer called a special advocate. And a special lawyer is somebody who gets the evidence, because the special chap is okay, and uh, doesn't meet his client or her client. So we have the creature called the special advocate. So the special advocate becomes somebody who represents the client without meeting the client, who is a kind of intermediary. Now, Joe mentioned I was a practicing, I'm a practicing barrister. We had such a big debate about this when it came in. Should a barrister be a special advocate or not? Should you buy into a system where you represent a client you can never meet, where you are the servant of the court, being given all this special information because you are trustworthy, but you cannot use it to support your client by communicating with your client? Some did, some didn't. Some did, some didn't. Those, I mean, there's an argument. Some, those who did, did well, you know. That grew and grew. The special advocate, hitherto unknown, uh, became almost routine, spreads into other areas all the result, paradoxically, of the growth of law and human rights. Most recent example, most recent example in Britain, extraordinary provision suggested and upheld in the divisional court uh, that an entire trial should be in secret and the fact of the trial should be in secret. Open justice. You know, we live, we work just beside the Royal Courts of Justice. It's the equivalent of what was called super injunctions. Not only do you not know what's going on in the case, you don't know there is a case. How? Answer, because people began to do the unthinkable and the judges began to go along with it, which is sue the British authorities for torture. So people would pop up who'd been in Guantanamo and they would say, we were tortured and the British colluded in it. Or when uh, the uh, when, when the, uh, I don't suppose I should mention Dr. Gaddafi. When Dr. Gaddafi's father fell in Libya, a certain amount of unpleasant evidence came to light about sort of things we'd been doing in terms of picking up chaps and 
they were ending up in unpleasant environments in Libya, and they would sort of think, well, we'd rather like to sue. And in the old days, what would have happened would be simply that was unthinkable, because law and security were different. Law and diplomacy were different. Not anymore. So these cases are beginning. And so the authorities and the people my colleagues at Matrix Chambers, where I work, and other barristers are taking them, and judges who come from a culture in this country, a very interesting culture of independence, whether right or left, were actually thinking, oh, the chap says he was tortured. Let's hear it. And then the government's got a real problem. They, they find it very hard to confirm or deny. So what are they going to say? So the solution has been to push for secret justice. And in cases that are going on at the moment, there's been a, uh, been a slight moderation of it by the Court of Appeal. But what we have is what I call neo-democracy, where we are getting used to the idea of cases which are secret, of lawyers who do not meet the clients they purportedly represent, of administrative powers, not mentioned by me up to now, being exercised against individuals which are not on the criminal burden of proof, but which mean they can be held at home, strictly controlled in their interactions with people. These are called terrorism prevention and investigatory measures, a sort of superstructure of administrative law that affects people. And all of this is compatible with human rights because it's processed through law. And so cases uphold it. And so the old tension between the two has disappeared, and one is becoming integral to the other. Now, America. I mentioned President Bush's second inaugural address, and in some ways President Bush had the virtue of a degree of clarity. After 11 September 2001, uh, there was a strong element within the United States government in a position of power who resented the erosion of executive power in the aftermath of the Nixon presidency, and they seized the opportunity to restore the presidency to a kind of executive primacy, and their legal fig leaf was that he was, as commander-in-chief, able to do what he wanted. And they found lawyers, they're all now successful, some of them are judges, others of them scandalously are academics, who uh, were able to write long papers which said that when you look very carefully at the law that uh, applied to King George III in 1765, it's obvious that he was a commander-in-chief and therefore President Bush's. And seriously, big long articles. Power can find any kind of excuse by finding any kind of lawyer. Now, there was a degree of honesty in that because that's absolutely not what I'm describing. That was basically, do you remember there was a big fuss about the Patriot Act, but actually President Bush was, tele- was listening to the phones all the time anyway. And now we know because of Edward Snowden exactly how extensive it was. Uh, President Bush was authorising torture uh, through that uh, Rumsfeld fellow, and uh, he was uh, not bothered about fitting within a legal framework. So commander-in-chief isn't a legal framework. But what happened in America was this was too much for the, even for the United States Supreme Court, this was too much. It was too much of a flouting of law. And what's interesting is lawyers want law to be respected 
even right-wing lawyers, you know. So, so there was a whole lot of cases involving Guantanamo. And, and then Abu Ghraib became shocking uh, for most people uh, and certainly diminished the moral authority of the commander-in-chief theory. Now, the reason I'm talking about that is there's been this similar shift in America. So under President Obama, we've moved to the, what I call the neo-democratic thing. First of all, he comes in saying, we will close Guantanamo Bay. And uh, I met some of the people who were planning this in the transition, and they were fairly determined. And Guantanamo was a bit like Belmarsh. Here, it was a kind of acid test of liberal credentials. But he hasn't, of course, closed it. I have to tell you, I, I think he was, would have taken an enormous risk closing it. I mean, that's just me wearing my slightly political advisor hat, because all you need is one person to run amok, who was former Guantanamo, and then you'd have Mr. Cheney uh, emerging from his 15th heart bypass, uh, George Bush pulling up in his little bike in Texas with his little sun hat on to say, there you are, America's not safe. You know, a person with a revolver can kill a whole lot of people in school and nobody notices, but if that were to happen, Fox News and, and Cheney, they'd all, be, they'd all make it. So it would have been a huge risk, I have to tell you. I think it would have been a huge risk. Anyway, he didn't close it. What did he do? He turned it into a kind of legalistic nightmare. So there is the sort of special tribunal, which is kind of fair, but not really, because it can't hear all the stuff, and you can't have the lawyer you want, and then maybe you can have this and that, blah, blah, blah. So there's a process which is designed to legitimize what is shocking, and which, if Iran were doing it, would be regarded as shocking, which is apprehending citizens of foreign countries, taking them into a prison camp, and throwing away the key. And if they are starving themselves to death in protest, force-feed them. Now, you know, that's unbelievable. But it still goes on, but it goes on now with the legal imprimatur, that's neo-democracy, the drones. Supposing uh, Iran were engaging using drones, if they had the technology. And Iran, we're friendly with Iran now, aren't we? Because the extremely well-trained Iraqi army has not proved as robust as we had thought, despite the hundreds of millions of dollars spent in training. So they're briefly our friend. So it's hard to pick somebody else. President Assad, I suppose. Uh, it's a picture of they were doing it, drones. You know, machines turning up and killing everybody. Well, the President Bush approach would have been, I'm Commander-in-Chief, I don't care. The President Obama approach are these tortuous documents from Mr. Holder and the legal justifications. And I wandered into this hornet's nest, to use an English cliche. Those of you who are not English speakers, natural English speakers, learn a cliche a day. It's great fun. A hornet's nest. Uh, because I spoke to a bunch of people who were MI something. And I talked a little bit about the drone thing, and they all got fantastically nervous. And I realized they were the people who did all the little plotting. So they were, they're over here in England, and they send over data to the people who push the button. And, of course, the people who push the button now are absolutely fine. They're well-trained, etc., etc., and the battlefield idea is disappearing, and it's all lawful. And how do I know it's lawful? Because the guy who was chairing me said at the end of my speech, we need to be absolutely clear, he said, that we all respect human rights here. 
And he was sort of right. And one of the examples of this is that the computerized Dropbox, you know, and I, I'm now, I don't think this is the case, but something like, uh, do you think this is a suspected terrorist, you know, tick yes. Sort of, have you complied with the European Convention on Human Rights, you know, articles, tick. So there are technological capacities which allow this to be a computerized tick box exercise, which then allows you to say, not incredibly, that you have got human rights permission to engage in these acts. And you also have parliamentary oversight, both in the United States and here, and uh, this is sort of the usual sort of committee uh, of some old guy who used to be a foreign secretary, uh, and, or it might be some judge. There's a very funny exchange about some judge who, when he heard about the Snowden thing, he went down to cross-examine the people in GCHQ. The cross-examination went along the following lines. Now, look here. Do you do this? No. Thanks. Marvelous. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually in a Home Affairs Select Committee proceedings. It's really, really, really very funny. Because Keith Vaz, who's an MP, was trying to tax the judge with exactly what he had said. And it was more or less that. More or less that, and he's the chief oversight guy. So we create a model which is a model which allows us to have our cake and eat it. To be another cliche for you. To be able to process stuff through the through the prism of human rights and law, which allows us to do it, but we have to tick a few boxes, and really that's fine. Uh, it's not just, I've concentrated in the United States and Britain because the United States is a powerful country and Britain is where we are, but this uh, neo-democracy is the new way of doing democracy. Because since 1989, uh, everybody's in favour of human rights now and everybody's in favour of democracy, you know, give or take a few Chinas, North Koreas and Belarus's. And even Belarus has sort of big... Actually, have a look at the Belarus constitution. It is funny. I mean, not if you live there, but even Belarus has, you know, we are the champions of the people, double exclamation mark or something. Uh, and, and China has, as you know, a human rights provision now because uh, they realise we can. This thing isn't as dangerous as we thought. But uh, Russia, Turkey, India, Russia and Turkey are both in the Council of Europe. Russia, Russia is a member of the Council of Europe it's absolutely vital to every Council of Europe member that they, they respect human rights. Russia are signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights. Russia has invaded two countries while being in the European Council, and nobody suggests they should leave. So, you know, Russia turn up the day after they've invaded Georgia. Fortunately, R and G are not beside each other in the alphabet, so they're not absolutely sitting next to each other to discuss some major issue of human rights concern, like some the length of the implementation of a judgment on pensions or something. And so there's this disordered understanding, which means you're able to get away with, as a virtual commons. Now, there are cases arising out of these things, and maybe the cases will eventually achieve change, but it doesn't look like it. The more government-appointed human rights independent experts there are, the more I would be very careful of a country. The Council of Europe's Commission on Human Rights went to visit Russia, and I think they met 47 independent human rights commissioners. And I thought, well, that's overdoing it a bit, you know. Uh, India, I'm afraid, is the same. Uh, killings by security services and so on. Uh, so just throw a few human rights experts in there. 
Uh, the United Nations, United Nations, uh, since 2001, there's now a system. You may know about this system. There's a system whereby uh, the Security Council decides you're on a blacklist, and uh, in its early implementation, it was simply your accounts were frozen, uh, you, you, you couldn't move, there was an aeroplane taking off uh, from Ireland and it was stopped in the wrong way and the aeroplane was confiscated. This is pre-2001, but it's a big case. And uh, your life is transformed. And who are you? Well, you're not a white, successful American. You're almost certainly uh, somebody identified with the Islamic uh, faith. You, uh, a lot of them were linked to the Palestinian movement, and who, who put their names on the list? Well, the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Foggy Bottom, if that's what it's called, the State Department used to take advice from friendly countries. You know what I'm getting at. And over time, because this is so monstrous, uh, people couldn't get off these lists and so on, they've moved to what I call this neo-democratic model. So there's a nice Canadian who is a sort of ombudsperson, and if you're suddenly put on a list, uh, the most of us I can see here won't be, but if you were put on a list, you write to her, and she says what's going on, and she's very proud of her role, but she's not able to guarantee due process. She's a sort of hand to hold. So the United Nations has gone down that route as well. There's a special counterterrorism committee of the UN Security Council, which travels around the world checking compliance with terrorism uh, council resolutions. So the UN is in danger of tilting upside down. The UN used to go around the place, I'm exaggerating slightly here, used to go around the place testing countries for compatibility with human rights. The UN now, a large bureaucracy within it, goes around the place testing countries for compatibility with terrorism laws. And now there's obviously tensions here. Uh, uh, but some countries use, say, for example, the terrorism requirements imposed by the UN as an excuse not to comply with UN human rights obligations. And certain countries have said, we cannot do what you want us to do because we have human rights concerns about them. So the UN has become a bit confused. Uh, getting to the end, in my last couple of minutes before we go into question and answer, uh, what's likely to be, what's likely? Well, the UN blacklisting thing has been challenged successfully in an odd place, the European Court of Justice. And the European Court of Justice has said, so far as this concerns Europe, you simply cannot take everybody's money and take everybody's life away from them without any kind of due process. We're not going to allow it. And there's been a major inter-institutional uh, impasse between the Security Council Union and the European Court of Justice. So one possible thing is that courts, the United States Supreme Court has not been bad on, for example, Guantanamo. The British courts have not been bad on the equivalent of Guantanamo here and so on. And there are other courts in other countries. It's possible that courts will stand up for a real rule of law. I'm highly dubious. I think courts can only do so much to resist trends in a democracy that are hard to resist from others. And courts that continue to resist begin to look eccentric. So, subject to that, and subject to a sudden re-energizing of democratic culture, and I don't see where that's coming from, quite soon-ish, penultimate remark, we could end up in a situation where we sort of take for granted that we're free because we're quite powerful and well-off, 
and the people around us are not. But we don't care about the people around us because even though the laws that get them theoretically can get us, we know they never will. And so there will be a, a world of freedom for the fortunate and a world outside that zone of freedom which is very fragile for those who are not fortunate. And we will think of it all as part of our human rights culture and part of our commitment to the rule of law. So we will be able simultaneously to collude in such a world and to feel good about ourselves in terms of our human rights commitments and so on and so forth. Now, the final remark is I, I think this analysis applies also to neoliberalism, but I haven't worked it out in my head yet. I think we're going to do it for the poor. So what we're doing is we're taking more and more from the poor, uh, the rich, and we're kind of making sure that as we destroy the lives of the poor, uh, we do so with laws which are compatible with human rights. And so we absolve ourselves from fully confronting our own brutality. And there's a whole lot of cases where awful, awful, aggressive conduct against the poor is upheld as compatible with human rights. So I think the trend is more even than human rights, security, and the rule of law after Snowden. And I'll stop with three seconds, two seconds, one second, half six. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Connor. Um, sorry. We have about 15 or 20 minutes maximum for questions. Uh, what I propose to do is to take, is to bundle them and to take three questions um, at a time. Could you, if you have a question, please do the old school trick of um, raising your hand. And do, once I've identified you, wait for the roaming microphone. We've got a couple of, we've got a few uh, stewards around with microphones, so please wait for them so that we can all hear you. Um, we've got a gentleman at the back with glasses on the second row. Yep. If you can identify yourself, the microphone is right there. Hello. Question number one. Thank you for the talk. I have a question concerning um, how is the rule of law about the data protection of our personal data on the internet in the sense of uh, Facebook um, and so on? Okay, there are a question on the relationship of uh, the rule of law and data protection and um, yeah, privacy and social um, yeah social media. Thank you very much. Do we have another question? I saw another hand up in the the gentleman in the first row with a blue t-shirt. Uh, thank you for the great talk. Um, I enjoyed the fact that you made that comparison or that parallelism with neoliberalism because I was about to. Uh, and I guess what I took away from your talk, particularly, and you repeated it several times, is that the dialogue or the discourse of human rights is fully compatible with the violation of what we would like to preserve as civil liberties or uh, other sort of things. Um, and I wanted to just further that parallelism and then ask a question. The point here is there has been, I think, hand-in-hand hand with the greater intrusion of the state into the private sector, I mean, into the private lives of individuals, the greater intrusion of markets and privatization, as even you said in the beginning, Snowden being representative for being a contractor, a private one, into the self-reproduction of working-class families of households throughout the world. 
And so parallel with human rights is the discourse of voluntarism and charity. We do it for the poor, despite the fact that we have to do it because we've destroyed social wage and social infrastructure. The question then is, obviously, the million-dollar question is, what discourse can we use to oppose these things? If human rights is insufficient, if voluntarism, if charity, which is just for the laundering of consciousness or whatever we would like to say, is insufficient, what can truly then oppose so that we can prevent the sort of legalistic veneer that will continue these abuses? Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. And we've got a question from the gentleman down here. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you for the talk. Um, I just have a quick question. You, you draw a rather scary vision of the future, and we are almost there, basically. What do you think has to happen to turn this around, or is it even possible to turn this around? Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Uh, I, think the, I think the second and third questions actually are quite similar, so I'll, I'll run them together. Uh, the first question, uh, there's, there's been, I don't have, I have two, a couple of research students have done PhDs on it. It's a hugely interesting uh, area. Uh, and I'll make one remark about a recent case, but there's quite a lot of uh, high-level standoffs between the European Union and the United States about this. And how it'll pan out, I don't know. Uh, the recent right-to-be-forgotten case is the one I wanted to mention, uh, which is really quite a remarkable decision about insisting on our capacity to apply to have our names removed from the Internet, where there is... Uh, a Google capacity to find us. So we're not removed completely, but removed via Google. I had a student here who was a wonderful man, a mature man with a family, and he never got a job ever. And he never got a job ever because every time people put his name into Google, they found proceedings the police had initiated against him which were, uh, were not carried out, and the police issued a full statement saying he wasn't implicated. But he was a relatively powerless individual because he was a, a British ethnic minority man, and he, had, uh, he was an immigrant. Uh, and an awful lot of this is about power. He took a case for libel against the BBC who had reported it and lost. And so I'm sure he's somebody who's going to be one of the first people to be applying for the right to be forgotten. Uh, but the trouble is power seizes opportunities. You know, and already we're seeing how the, so the right to be forgotten can be used by powerful people to expunge their record. Uh, and that's, of course... A worry on the other matter. I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's continuing to be a source of huge friction between the Americans and the Europeans. Uh, on, on the second and third questions, uh, how do we turn this round? Is sort of not dissimilar to where are the societal resources to resist. Uh, but I make a preliminary remark on the uh, point not covered in my talk, which is actually a really pessimistic one, which is that. Uh, the historical human rights model is the state invading the rights of the individual. And it's what lawyers, when they're being technical, call a horizontal, no, a vertical relationship. And that's historically where our human rights ideas in the West come from, you know, the idea we resist the state. But one of the ill effects of this is that horizontal invasions of rights by private parties are out with the human rights regime. Uh, what you need to do is you need to work out a complicated way in which the state has a positive obligation to intervene on their behalf. Now, that sounds technical. What it means is, for example, a woman in a care home where the care home is not run by the local authority, i.e. a state body, but is run by a privatized entity for profit, that person, subject to specific legal provisions, cannot avail of the human rights protections because the people, as it were, 
abusing her rights are private actors. Now, that's been changed as a result of an uproar, as a result of a case, but that's uh, a, a general point. And there's a rather sad case called Appleby, talking about what do we do? Well, what about protest? Well, these guys were protesting in a private mall, shopping mall, and they were declared to be trespassers and kicked out. And they said this is the right to protest. And the European Court of Human Rights said, well, actually it's not, because it's a private mall. Where you can protest is the high street. And so you have this rather sad picture of a kind of bunch of people handing out leaflets to no passers-by, while the kind of consumerist nirvana that is the mall is uh, protected from any kind of protest. So there's a real problem there about private actors. Of course, a lot of this stuff is now being done by private actors. On resources, human resources, it's a very good question, the two of you. Uh, I... I, I suppose I think uh, I'm basically a social democrat, so I lay political cards on the table. I think this is political. You can't pretend it's not political. And the major resource for achieving social democracy was the labour movement, was organised labour, was trade unions, and was the support that they gave to political parties, which then articulated a vision, which was a vision delivered by their political leaders. And that was something which power accepted in the 20th century uh, because they were concerned about something bigger, which was communism. And I think 1917 really terrified power in the way that 1789 had in the 19th century. And I think social democracy was the price they were prepared to pay to protect their disproportionate access to wealth and power anyway. And therefore, in a way, labor parties and social democratic parties survived and were not destroyed at birth by antagonistic capital. Now, I think that period is over. I think after the end of the Cold War, with the corruption of Russia and its return, though many of you will know more about it than me, to a kind of czarist, capitalist, bandit state, there's no fear. There's no fear anymore. China's not going to invade. And therefore, there is a major effort to take back the concessions of social democracy. And labor movements are not equipped to resist this. Labour movements are mimicking it because they're being told by their, by their pollsters that they have to. And I think it's a terrible, terrible pity that Barack Obama didn't devote the second of his, his terms maybe to following up on the gun control. That would have been nice. But actually a series of speeches. We say, I, I can never be elected again. I'm going, to use the, I'm going to use the status of president to tell you some truth. And he hasn't done that. There's a fantastic article in the London Review books this week, if you can see it. The Eternal Spectator does nothing. Uh, we have a political leader here, Ed Miliband, for whom I have great admiration. He's our social democratic guy here. He's tacking to the right as well. And so they, they, all, they all think the answer lies in mimicry. The trouble is, without political parties and organized trade unions, other stuff comes and goes, you know. The church, NGOs, Facebook sudden hysteria over an, an issue which then everybody's forgotten they were hysterical about a week later. Capital can sit that out. Occupy movement, what's happened? It's marvellous. I greatly admire what's happened. Where's the sustainability? And I think we need to rebuild a commitment to political parties. I really do. And there's some people working on this. And we need to be not ashamed to say the parties are different. But the trouble is, because of the global controls... Political parties in our countries cannot achieve change because they are constrained by power. 
Directly after the Second World War, we were all given democracy, but our financial institutions were not democratized. They were created outside the, the nation states in international shape, which was beyond the reach of the, international, of the national bodies. So these political leaders that I'm saying should exercise some degree of radical commitment are hamstrung by pre-existing treaty commitments to certain things which limit their scope for manoeuvre. So it's very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. But re-established political parties on the left, social democracy, doesn't have to be extreme left, solidarity across Europe, I, I think Europe remains a hope. I'm, I'm, I think Europe's amazing. Europe, the European Union's amazing. And they've gone for a grand coalition now in the European Parliament. They, uh, they, they're trying to stand up for something in the middle of a turbulent global world, and they have a bit of clout. But we mustn't lose our nerve, because otherwise capital wins. And capital is just gated communities. It's extremely rich people. It's police forces. You know it from some countries, that won't be mentioned, where you drive quickly to a place, there's guards outside, you drive quickly home, you're protected in your space. We don't want that kind of life. It's, it's possible, but we have to resist it. So build as much social capital as we can. But I do not think you can do without political parties in the labour movement. Just need to rethink what they are. Okay, we have some more questions. Gentleman at the far back uh, with the black rim glasses. Are there any questions down here? Please raise your hand. We'd especially like some questions from women. Would you? Gender responsibility, please. Good idea. Hey, guys. Um, well, thank you for putting this on. I'm having a great time here in London, so it's nice to be here. Um, my question is this. The Supreme Court in the United States said that we have a, kind of a right to privacy where we have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Do we any longer have that reasonable expectation of privacy since the Snowden leaks? <laughs> reasonable expectation of privacy? And um, you're going to be difficult to reach by microphone, but yeah, can you? Yeah, perfect. The microphone's right behind you. Yeah. Hi. I have a question about targeted sanctions. Uh, after the Nkadi case, NADA, and now Waldurimi, uh, I was wondering if a state could uh, um, consider the United Nations resolution like Ultravirat Act and decide not to implement it and avoid also the international responsibility. From a legal point of view, of course, yeah. also considering uh, Article 100. You mean not, not implement uh, Security Council yes. resolutions? Yes. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I got that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Do we have one more question? Um, Okay, from the gentleman up there in the pink T-shirt. Pink or white? Pink. So you mentioned nations being um, hamstrung by treaty obligations. Um, I mean, to me at least, the, the nation state is the, the ultimate authority of our modern age, and all treaties are entered into by agreement. Uh, they don't, uh, at least to my knowledge, receive any primacy above uh, the laws and especially above the constitutions of any, of any nation state. And so if, if they're seen to um, hamstring us in such a fashion, um, can't they be gotten out of? Can't they be? Sorry, what? Gotten out of. Yeah. Gotten out of. Thank okay. you very much. Okay. Shall I give it all? Yes. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. I think... Uh, there's a difference between saying, as courts have done, you go on the high street and somebody takes your photo, you can't stop them. 
and there were cases, for example, where the police would take your photo on the street. And uh, there there is a reasonable expectation of privacy that cannot be sustained. There's a difference between that uh, and a contextualised reasonable expectation of privacy. I did a legal opinion for the police, and they wanted to know about surveillance of people outdoors uh, after a late night, and they want to know about its legality, CCTV stuff. This is in the early days. And there was a difference, as I pointed out to them, between generalised CCTV and then specifically targeting, say, uh, a gay couple who were in uh, an embrace. Uh, and, and that context would then mean, even though they're in a public place, they had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Because what's happening is we're engaging in a judgment about what is to be expected, which is not driven by the available technology. So I would say that the fact that we can do these things does not mean that we have no right to expect privacy and that our reasonable expectation of privacy should remain, which should then drive a control on access to that private sphere. So I would say reasonable expectation of privacy should not just take its colour from what can be done, but should have a political, legal dimension. The real trouble with the old UN thing is it's all very well for Europe to say boo to the UN Security Council and for all of us to cheer. And then what happens when whoever it is says, oh, that was rather good, Europe has, has rejected the UN Security Council, so we can too. And the, the more, the really effective criticisms of these line of cases, you know them and others here might not, but these cases in the European Court of Human Rights you refer to as well, the European Court of Justice cases, is we cannot have an international framework of law which is, 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 is a la carte, you know. So countries will choose bits of the UN thing and then will ignore the others. And the trouble is, kind of Europe has led on that. So I, I, I think it's, it's an anxiety I have about whether we've created frameworks which will allow others to dodge UN obligations on refugees, on human rights, and so on. The answer, I think, must lie in either removing completely uh, the UN counterterrorism stuff on the basis that it's no longer necessary, or at least embracing it with law in a way that brings it as close to due process as possible. The nation-state... I, I, this is, I, I was writing about this today. It's sort of slightly grand, so forgive me. But things have outlived their heyday in our culture. And our, their heyday, the nation states, the big idea of modernism. Human rights, the big idea of modernism. The rule of law, big idea of modernism. And there's still, there's still a facade. This is, they're, still, they're still there. They can't be removed but they are, the word I used in my article was simulcra, you know, they're sort of shadows of what they used to be. And this is the worry, that they don't disappear, but that they become empty vessels. And more and more you see uh, in political cultures, the fact that people can't do anything about real issues means they fight endlessly about the past, or they have hysterical anger about some relatively trivial matter. And so the nation-state continues to function, but it does so in a way which is completely cynical and where all politicians are damned and where 
there's ongoing concerns about stuff that's long over, but nobody talks about the present because they know they can do nothing about the present. And, I mean, that's as good as a dead nation-state as you can get. But you don't remove them. That's what we've discovered, I think, after, 19, uh, after 2001, 1989 as well. It seems to me there's something in them, but they don't seem to function as independent autonomous entities anymore. They're shadows. Well, thank you very much, Connor, for a riveting talk. Um, you've spoken about uh, human rights and the rule of law before, during, and after Snowden, and you've made similar points about uh, the, the role of law before democracy, during democracy, and after democracy. And we need to move to that stage now after your talk. So I've been uh, reliably informed that, do you want to make that statement, or shall I make the announcement, that drinks will be served within the next 10 minutes on the fifth floor of this building, which is the senior dining room to which you're all um, invited and welcome. Is it just drinks or nibbles as well? Nibbles and drinks. Nibbles and drinks. <laughs> Most free. Oh, free. <laughs> Um, as of a right or entitlement. But before we go to the fifth floor, could I please ask you to thank Conor Geerty? We've been very privileged to have you here today. Thank you very much.